Welcome to Workforce Rx with Patoral Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlivan, CEO of Patoral Health. On a prior episode of this podcast, journalist John Marcus of the Heckinger Report offered a pretty blunt criticism of higher education that many insiders in the industry know to be true. Colleges and universities do a poor job of drawing connections between programs they offer and job opportunities. With both the cost of colleges and level of student debt continuing to rise, this is a shortcoming that needs urgent attention. My guest today, Mark David Milliron, the president and CEO of National University, is going to weigh in on that issue, as well as how to better meet the needs of adult learners and what he refers to as the whole human approach to education. In addition to his role at National University, Mark works with universities, community colleges, K-12 schools, corporations, and government agencies throughout the U.S. and abroad. He also teaches in the Education Leadership Doctoral Program at the University of Texas at Austin College of Education. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Glad to be here. Thank you for the introduction. Absolutely. Well, geez, we first met when you were at the Gates Foundation, and you've since been Chancellor of Western Governors University in Texas, Chief Learning Officer for a private sector company, Civitas Learning, and previously led the Community College League of Innovation. You've seen the world of higher education from so many vantage points. Have you seen real changes in higher education over your years? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm three decades plus into this work, and what's pretty clear is um, anybody who says things just stay the same in higher ed isn't paying attention. Uh, I mean, just the amount of transition in our world and the expansion of opportunities for students is profound. And you have a lot of challenges and there are a lot of things we're trying to do to make things better for more students. And then we can definitely dive deeper on that. But um, especially the last three decades, we have seen significant change in the education space and the ability and the commitment of people to help not just open the doors. Really, the last, you know, if you go back 100, 200 years in the world of American education in particular, it was all about the access agenda. How do we help more people get in? So it was land grant institutions and it was junior and technical colleges, then it was community colleges, then it was kind of the adult learning models that were rolling in. And access was the name of the game. But really the last 15, 20 years has been, hey, how can we not just help them get in, but how do we help them finish what they start? And now the conversation is not just finish, but actually finish with value where we know that it's actually helping them with their personal choices and their careers. Um, and there's just been a lot of work around that um, with, you know, government agencies, foundations, and educational institutions really committing to helping more and more diverse students be more successful than ever before. So uh, what I'll say is, is it's been a rowdy time to be in the world of education, and it's been kind of fun to watch the adoption of the internet, the, you know, the emergence of kind of broad online learning sectors, the emergence of large national scale universities that are kind of partnering us all the way down down to local community colleges. It's been fun. Yes, there's a lot being reinvented and transformed at this moment in time. I'm curious, Mark, what had you hoped to see that you are not seeing? I think, you know, the thing I wish was going faster is, you know, in the consumer space, the, I hate to say simple thing, but the, the thing we all expect now, which is 
if you watch Netflix or if you shop on Amazon is a, you know, a person like you who bought this would might like this, right? Person who watched this, you'll probably like this. That level of personalization and self-service um, that would allow somebody in the consumer space or you're seeing it in the healthcare space and definitely seeing it in other sectors is not really hitting education at scale. So what happens is there's still far too many people, and it's usually low-income, first-generation folks that have this problem. If you're a second, third, fourth-generation student in the world of higher ed, meaning your parents went, your grandparents went, you're scaffolded. You're scaffolded by a whole family of people, and when you need to make choices, the world comes to help you make those choices. If you're a first-generation, low-income student, you just don't have the same kind of scaffolds. And what I really hoped 10, 15 years ago um, in work with Oracle and SAS and so many others was... We'd get that data faster to the world of education, the ability to use everything from descriptive data to advanced uh, AI engines now and ML machine learning to be able to help students make better choices, right? So they would know students like you at this stage in their career, here's the next courses they took. Here's the next curricular resources they would access to help them learn this concept. I, I thought we'd be at the just-in-time learning stage. We'd be farther advanced on that. There's some good examples of people who are doing some niche things, but it's definitely not a scale thing. Most students in this country are still, I hate to say flying blind, but they're flying by. I've had to bring together large groups of higher education folks in retreats with the challenge of thinking about the future of higher education. And it's, you know, you usually get some you know, incremental ideas. But when I pose the provocative question of, well, what would Amazon do or what would Google do if they were to enter higher education? Interestingly enough, the ideas that come out are super creative because these individuals themselves want to benefit from that kind of personalized education where there's a, a recommendation engine just like Netflix, right? Or just like your your Prime Video. And so here's the challenge. It's, it's the notion of goal displacement. National University is a large nonprofit totally focused on adult learners and have been for since our founding. We were founded by a Navy captain who then went on to become the head of learning and development for General Dynamics. And he was deeply committed to adult learning and got just furious that his courses at UC San Diego Extension were not being transcripted and accepted by other higher education institutions. And to him, it made no sense whatsoever. So he invented a university that would serve adult learners. And in particular, he determined, hey, five classes over 16 weeks makes no sense for a deployed sailor. It makes no sense for a working person. Can we create models that are more working student friendly? So that's the one course at a time model, four week classes, eight week classes, you know, one on one models. And, and that's our history. It's been from that crazy idea to now it's 220,000 graduates, two thirds of them are diverse. We're now 48,000 students, two thirds of our current students are diverse. We're the largest graduate degree granting institution for diverse students in the country, number two for doctoral students, um, number one teaching trainer in the state of California, and one of the, I think we're the top private transfer institution. So we've been rowdy kind of at about this space and we're built for purpose. We're built for this moment, we're built for this work. The problem is a lot of the advanced data work is pointed at a certain goal, which is optimizing traffic, optimizing engagement, or optimizing profit. And the challenge is if that's your goal, right, then it's, oh, by the way, learning. And people, it, it, it's hard because the same kind of things for people who really believe deeply in learning, what we need to do is train that same data and that same analytics engine. Um, and this was the early work we did at Civitas Learning 
was, hey, can we train that data work on helping people improve and expand their learning and make it more likely that they finish what they start in higher ed? And that's what's going to get us there is getting out of the goal displacement around just getting bigger or, or making more money. But actually, I think where this turns into gold is when it's focused on learning. Can we help students learn more effectively and how, how can we help them finish strong in a really good way? And I know you'll get this in your bones. Like I've heard people all the time when I came in the national, like, oh, isn't your goal to be as big as WGU or as big as SNU? And I'm like, your goal cannot be size. Your goal cannot be scale. Your goal has to be to deserve scale. You have to be so good and so good at delivering value to your students. And then you build the infrastructure so you can scale then that two-step works, right? You get really, really good at what you do and you build the infrastructure so you can scale that in the whole way. If your job first job is scale, you short shrift the learning side. That's a real problem. So that's one of the challenges I see in the world of education. People are chasing size. People are chasing scale. They're not chasing learning quality. They're not chasing value. And like what we want to be is because we want this conversation to be around how do we help students learn well, learn deeply, have great experiences that give them really strong economic opportunity, really strong career preparation, great personal learning networks, really good experiences and, and help them be able to kind of take on the world. Well, Mark, I love that vision. It sounds like you're hoping to reshape the future of learning, learning quality, learning value uh, at the helm of National University. So we're, we're cheering you on on that cause. I'm sure a lot of best practices will come out of your leadership and tenure there. Um, You've also made reference to whole human education. What do you mean by that? So we have a firm belief because of the students we serve, right? We, we are not serving the right from high school full-time students who want climbing walls and residence halls, right? If they want that, they're, and we love our state universities. We love our research ones. Um, we love our community colleges. But if you're an 18-year-old who wants the campus-based experience, you're not coming to national. And that's fine. We think that's wonderful because what we know is that at a different age and stage, you might be coming to us, right? And our job will be to serve those you when you when you're working full-time with two kids and now you want an MBA now you want a doctoral degree. That's like how we want to be able to pull that. And what we want to be able to do is make sure we can meet you where you are and take you where you need to go. Now, that means we need to understand who you are. Um, and that means uh, understanding deeply that almost all of our students are and students, meaning they're parents and students, they're soldiers and students, they're employees and students. And that and nature means that just drives our kind of flexibility. And what we do when you learn more about that, you find out that that complexity is the number one reason students are leaving higher ed journeys who, if you're serving adult learners, they're not leaving because they can't academically cut it. They're leaving because life happens or because logistics get in the way. So part of what we have to do is understand the whole student. And if you understand the whole student, you're thinking, how can I help the student financially? Maybe they have housing insecurity, food insecurity, transportation challenges. How can we help them with career opportunity choices and pathing? How can we help them with their community engagement and connections? Um, how can we help them even with their family? What are the things we can do with childcare for those students as they're coming in? That whole human education really matters. And our theory of the case, theory of change, if I want to use my philanthropy background, is we believe deeply that we want to use next generation education, the advancing tools and technologies and modalities and modes combined with whole human education to wrap that kind of support around students with an innovative model and aim that at value-rich education. And our definition, and I know you'll love this because I know you, our definition of value-rich education is we think next-gen education and whole human education 
if you just leave it by itself, it's like a high-tech spa, right? It's not aimed at anything, right? And whole human without the next gen is really like a spa. Next gen without whole human is often dehumanizing and people don't feel connected. We think those two together are fantastic, but they have to be aimed at something. And the aim is... How do we help students really get the most value out of their stage in the world of education? You know, the people who are really pushing the completion agenda, just trying to help students finish, the short-sightedness of that is they end up kind of reducing college to a collection of classes. And, and we just feel deeply that college is far more than a collection of classes. First of all, they, it doesn't have to be classes. What we know is our students' journeys are really a family of experiences that happen to include classes. So the experiences can be orientation, can be peer relationships, can be internships, can be co-curricular activities. And what we want to do is curate and connect those experiences, including those classes and other kinds of learning experiences, in a way where a student can get the most value out of their time with us. That means we want them to have a credential-rich experience. And that means I love the idea of can we do the work of curating and connecting a family of credentials for students so they can get badges and certifications along with associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. So that when they leave, they accumulate all the possible industry certifications and credentials that would matter for them to get really good jobs and have great economic opportunity. Then can we help them make the most connections? We call it the connection rich because students want to connect with other students. They want to feel like they belong. They want to feel like they're a part of something. They want to connect with faculty. They want to connect with professionals in their, in their space. Those connections are actually the things they talk about a graduation. They don't really talk about their, their learning management system, right? They talk about the faculty and the students. And then we want experience-rich education where they're really getting these deep, rich experiences because what we know is those internships, those connections with rural enterprises, with difference makers. And, you know, my colleagues often joke with me about this because we say we don't want students just to finish. That's the low bar. What we want is we want our students to suck the marrow out of this experience. We want them to get the absolute most out of their time with us. So that means we want to use analytics. We want to use data to tell a student, hey, a student like you at this stage, here are the people you need to meet. Here are, the, here are the experiences you could have. Here's the co-curricular activity you can be a part of. We want to help shepherd them in a way and scaffold them in a way where they just get stronger and better as they're going through this entire journey and they just get enormous value by the end. So this is a good transition to my next question. I mean, you've alluded to some of the elements. You talk about a connection-rich uh, environment. You talk about a family of credentials and you talked about experience-rich education. You know, nearly 50 colleges closed in 2022, and it's a, a continuing rising trend. What do you think the next 10 years will bring and which types of institutions will fare best, Mark? I, I think it's a hard time for folks who are in the traditional model because, you know, we are coming out of a... <laughs> there's no other way to call it, a disastrous disease phase, right, post-pandemic. Um, and then at the same time, we're facing daunting demographics. And the daunting demographics are basically, is basically, if you're a traditional higher education institution, you're not going to high school your way out of this problem, right? There aren't enough students that are coming out of that traditional channel. And so I think the institutions that are diversified, that actually have a family of learning opportunities available for students, you know, maybe they have some traditional work, but they're also doing the non-traditional work. And, and that those monikers probably don't make any sense anymore. 
It's they're actually doing diversified learning opportunities for students, allowing for short cycle education that ladders into degrees eventually where students can come in and come out. They're doing adult learning. They're doing flexible modeling. So maybe a mix of on-ground hybrid and fully online to meet students where they are and help them go where they're going to need to go. I think the folks who are willing to innovate with modes and models are going to be most successful. And the folks who are willing to kind of look at their community of service and say, how can we show up and serve the most effective way? <laughs> I always talk about the fact that I loved blockbusters. Blockbuster, when it was around, was one of my favorite places. I'm a movie buff. I love movies. And Blockbuster was amazing. To be able to go into that store and go through their shelves and pick your movies for the I'm going to rent these three movies for the weekend. That was amazing. But there aren't many blockbusters anymore. And the reason that is, is because there's easier ways to distribute movies. People still love movies. People are still watching movies in lots of different formats. But what we have to think about is there's different ways of distribution. It's not just the blockbusters anymore. Now it's a whole family of options. Same thing with learning. And I don't want to oversimplify our learning strategies. But what we know is that students, especially post-pandemic, have learned how to learn in different ways. They've been exposed to different kinds of learning models. And they're voting with their feet. They're, they're actually choosing mixed models. And by the way, this doesn't mean they don't want face-to-face. -face. It just means the face-to-face -face might be different. So they actually might want learning space where they can connect with other people and they can get just-in-time support and they can get advising, not sitting in a classroom listening to a lecture, right? It's just going to be a different mix of how we use people time. And as I'm talking about, how do we use our tools to make our human time precious? Well, I guess the students are walking with their feet, and I, I'm on the board of the National Student Clearinghouse, and as you know, that data is pretty rough to read, which is the, the, the continuous declining enrollment in higher education across all of these systems, right? So I would love your color commentary on why there's continued enrollment losses in some of our traditional institutions and What's going right? And the big online players like yourselves and ASU Online and Southern New Hampshire University have been growing over the pandemic. How will you navigate Nationals' future? No, I mean, it's a great question. I think it points to daunting demography, right? You just have fewer folks who are coming right from high school who want the traditional learning model. And increasingly, first-time, full-time students don't just want campus-based experiences. Now, I want your listeners to hear this. This does not mean there will not be a market for some on-ground experiences, very traditional experiences. There are some students who are going to want that, but that's not all students. And in fact, what we're seeing is more and more students want to mix and match. They want to have maybe at this time of my life, I'm going to do a very traditional, but later I'm going to do online. And what we know is that we have to think about the family of folks who are in the world of higher education and understand that, you know, less than a quarter are the traditional 18 to 20 year old on campus going full time. That's not the dominant model in higher ed. We've got to be more flexible to understand the family of folks who are coming through. During the pandemic, people like Western Governors, SNU, National University were very successful because they were built for that moment. They were built for flexible learning and online learning for folks who needed that kind of flexibility. Made all the sense in the world that they're growing. They also found a new market during the pandemic because a whole bunch of people didn't realize, wow, I didn't, I had no idea this existed. And so suddenly they started telling everybody. So literally some of the organic growth just came from people going, yeah, I tried that and I loved it. National really, there was one course at a time. It was online. It was fantastic. It just ended up with that kind of word of mouth. Um, that's continuing. The economy is still adding jobs like crazy. So, I mean, when economy is usually adding jobs like it is, higher ed always has a hard time. So you have the combination of an economy adding jobs combined with daunting demography. 
anybody in their right mind would look at traditional ad and say, you're going to have a hard time for a while, right? Because that's just how this market's going to play out. It just means, again, people who are more diversified, who are doing some of all of it, are going to be in a much better position because they're able to meet different learning needs in a more kind of robust way. Uh, but this is pretty important, man. I think we've got to be willing to think about um, almost regional education ecosystems and understand what we want is, especially for low-income first-generation students, they generally stay within 50 miles of where they were born their entire lives. So it's figuring out the family of institutions they're probably going to interact with and figure out how can we help that ecosystem operate more efficiently. We want great high schools, great community colleges, great state universities, great R1s, and I think you want great innovators like NU and SNU and WGU as well, because we serve a market that's not being hit by the others as well. We're actually serving that adult learner, that working learner who needs more flexibility. Here's a concrete example. Being smart about our work with community colleges. Like we're one of the top transfer institutions in the state of California for community colleges. And that's because I would argue we're good partners. We're not trying to poach their students. We actually have done the math. Students who finish their associates are three times more likely to finish their bachelor's with us. So we try to put incentives in place to incent the students to finish their associates before they come to us. It's the finish to go further strategy. And so if you build that kind of partnership, then guess what? Community colleges want you on their campus. They want you partner with them because you're a good partner helping them in set completion and then you're helping their students get on to get their bachelors in a more flexible way we do the same thing with like hbcus who don't have graduate programs we, you know we want their students to finish their bachelors at that hbcu but then come into our mba come into our you know masters in psychology come into our masters in social work whatever it might be we can be partners around that and that's where the ecosystem is working at its best because maybe that person gets an undergrad you know business degree from um, you know, Arizona State, but now they're going to work somewhere and they need flexibility while they're getting their MBA, we can show up and help them do that. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, you know, I've often talked about the ecosystem of the willing and what you're giving an example, right? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and you're giving examples of how to structure the win-win relationships within that ecosystem. And so let me ask you this question. You know, Fitura Health is bringing quality healthcare training programs and partners into our workforce ecosystem to make it easier to connect diverse communities into the credentials that is needed to compete these, for these healthcare jobs. Are you seeding any innovations in the healthcare area that you'd like us? Yeah, I think there's two or three things I would bring up. One is one out of four of our students are military affiliated. And one of the things we've seen is um, figuring out how you can on-ramp folks coming out of the military into healthcare uh, positions has become pretty important. And part of that is assessment of prior learning, taking the good learning they've gotten in their training in the military and being able to credit map it into our program so they can accelerate towards their degrees in a way that makes sense. Um, that has become a really big deal. And, and we've, uh, we've worked really hard with our partners to be able to make that happen and to make those pathways as smooth as possible. Nothing's more discouraging for a student to sit in a class, have to take a class that they could be teaching, right? Because they were on a battlefield doing that, right? You know, um, just a couple of years ago. So we've really worked hard around that. I think we've worked really hard with our clinical partners to make sure we can accelerate clinical partnerships and leverage the best of AR and VR to create different kinds of relationships. So for example, our nursing program 
program was an early adopter of virtual reality to train nurses in COVID. And that was hugely beneficial during the COVID pandemic because we were able to turn out a bunch of nurses that were able to help all over um, the United States, but especially in California. And we could train them quickly using VR strategies and partnerships with our clinical partners and get them into the, you know, get them into the hospital so they could actually help. And the third one I'd say is, is the whole focus on grow your own strategies to try to get especially diverse communities with a lot of low-income first-generation students, help them understand the trajectory of getting into a STEM field and getting into a health field, and help them understand, hey, we got to get early. We have to help those third graders master these math concepts, these eighth graders master, master algebra. We have to get these science courses early so that as they're rising, they're not behind the eight ball when they get into higher ed. That's a really big deal. So that means working with our K-12 partners and, and helping set the bar high in terms of what those experiences are. So we're doing early college experiences so students can get an early touch of that healthcare pathway while they're in high school and get them on that pathway faster. Um, it also means we have to work with our policy partners to make sure that they can get their clinicals in a way where they can live and survive. A lot of low-income first-generation students have a hard time doing the clinicals because they can't not work. And so one of the things we've been really championing is the idea of using work-study funds for healthcare clinicals and teaching clinicals, because those are the ultimate examples of, of true apprenticeships, right, in terms of where they're going. And I think we've gotten some real juice. We have some people, I think, now on the federal level who are really open to this idea, and I think we can probably get some real traction around it. So we have all kinds of ideas. We're pretty passionate about the healthcare field, and uh, I'm, I'm literally, I was just down at our Spectrum campus uh, this morning, which is right across the street from a major hospital system, so we're... Like we're in this. <laughs> Happy to join forces, especially on the issue of, of clinicals. I mean, some of these occupations and programs of studies require 3,000 hours of unpaid clinical. That's like working for a whole year without pay. Who can afford to do that? It is such a sign of privilege to be able to do that. Right. We really need to think about how to make these occupations more inclusive, especially when the country needs some of these occupations so so direly. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer. I think we should fix the work-study regulations and we should go for a special appropriation for, I call it the COVID Hero Work-Study Act. The COVID Hero Work-Study Act would be a massive inflection into work-study focused on nurses and teachers. Um, that would specifically be able to use those work-study funds to be able to fund clinicals so folks could be able to actually survive while they're going through their clinical practice. I think we could actually help heal those fields post the pandemic in, in pretty profound ways. So whenever you want to go with me to the Hill, let's do it. That is a smart policy idea. I love that. Thank you for sharing, Mark. You mentioned prior learning assessment and recognition of prior work experience. Tell us more about whether these practices apply beyond the the, the military group and yeah, what are the best practices there? There's a few best practices around that. One is there's a real explosion of mastery-based learning, competency-based learning in general. Um, there's the larger skills conversation, of course, with open skills network that's out there. But I also think the, to me, the competency-based education, mastery-based education movement has really taken off. If your listeners haven't visited mastery.org, I would encourage them to look at it. Mastery.org is the website of the Mastery Transcript Consortium. It is the largest um, K-12 group doing competency-based learning in the country. 400 independent schools and school districts that are partnering around rolling out competency-based learning. And what they've done is they've partnered in the development of a mastery-based transcript 
that replaces the grade-based transcript and, and really is unlocking innovation like you can't believe. And they're just now, they have students who are leaving these MTC schools who are submitting master transcripts to Stanford, to University of Michigan, to other schools because they're making it the norm as opposed to graded transcripts having mastery transcripts. It's fascinating. And I think that is the beginning of this where students can now be able to master these kinds of skills in different contexts, including work, and then be able to come back and show hey, I already know that. Like, and so they can get their credit for what they already know. We can meet them where they are and take them where they need to go on their learning journeys. So I'm, I'm really encouraged. I think there's more energy around mastery-based learning than ever before. I think it really comes out of the pandemic. I think so many people had experiences with homeschooling and really helping folks learn. And they, I just be blunt. On, unfortunately, I can't tell you how many students you talk to the trauma they have with education is so wrapped up in grades and the grading system is so imprecise and weird. And we make faculty members be the keepers of points, right? As opposed to the people who are trying to inspire learning. And when you get rid of that grade-based shaming that's out there, and it really is, it ends up in a, in a basically a blame and shame cycle where it's either students feel ashamed for getting a certain grade or they're blaming the teacher for giving them a bad grade, right? And it's just no matter what, there's no good that comes out of it. If you can move to more of this kind of this, this learning model with based on mastery, um, I think you end up in more of a grace and challenge cycle, which is, okay, you didn't get it this time, but you know what? Let's keep at it. Here are the resources you need to kind of bolster your learning and let's try it again. And so that grace and challenge cycle, which is by like none of us would give our child a, a C in shoe tying and then never help them again, right? That we're on to the next thing. No, <laughs> we're going to stay with them until they actually get better at that, right? And they're going to help them master that concept. To me, I just think it's more, it's just so much more organic as a learning enterprise and builds so much more energy. And I think that infrastructure is going to help us, especially when we're translating, you know, the work-based learning and how work-based learning can sync with formal learning. And this is where this enormous work-based learning infrastructure can then begin to interchange with formal higher ed. Literally, businesses and industries and the U.S. military are spending billions of dollars on training uh, and development for their folks. If we could skills map that, competency map that, and be able to map that back into degree pathways, we could get people fast-tracked in ways we can't even imagine. Mark, um, I actually have some personal uh, experience with the mastery-based transcript because during the pandemic, my son transferred over into Khan Lab School, oh, okay. which is a mastery-based. It was founded by Sal Khan who, who, uh, of Khan Academy. Yeah. And he has just really thrived in that environment. And my concern over time is that all the learning loss that we've experienced over the last few years, it's going to be very hard for institutions, but also employers to figure out what somebody actually knows. And so a mastery-based transcript would be one of the remedies, right? I think that's right. People have known that for a long time. Like, you know, I remember when Western Governors was being founded, Scott McNeely wrote a big check to Western Governors to really found the IT college. And one of the reasons he did is because you know, he was running Sun Microsystems. He's like, I am sick of getting people who have bachelor's degrees from all these institutions in CIS, and they don't know how to code. Right. They have no idea of how to engineer software. He's like, so I don't know what they learned while they were there. I don't know what they mastered. And this idea of competency based learning, at least mastery based learning, I have an idea of like here are the things that they were supposed to have mastered while they were there. Well, let's end with this question to you, which is, Mark, tell us what 
makes you optimistic about the future of learning? Oh, I am I am so excited about the moment we're in. And part of it is because I think you have a confluence of three things right now. You have a deep imperative to help more and more diverse students be more successful than ever before. Our economy won't work, our country won't work, our communities won't work without us getting that right. And I think that has brought a lot of people with different kinds of passions and purposes around education together to help begin the innovation. Two, we have more tools and technologies and resources at our disposal than ever before in human history. And that means we have the opportunity to innovate like you can't even imagine. And that's going to allow us to really try different things and understand what's working and what's not. That brings up this third thing, which is we have more data at our hands than ever before to understand what's working and for whom and in what way, which was going to allow us to not lead the way in this innovation based on who can tell the best story. We can actually understand, okay, this works well, this doesn't work well, this works well for some people, not for others. And we can try, test, and tune. If you look over the last 500 years, the only time major educational infrastructures change is when the societal underpinnings have changed. You know, we invented public high schools and land-grant institution when the Industrial Revolution demanded we needed more people people at a certain level. We're beginning to transition now in our education because we're, we're going post-industrial revolution towards the information society. and We need far more people educated at a much higher level. Um, and we're going to have to do it in very different ways. And we're going to have to reinvent that. And because that passion and purpose is there, and we've got the tools and we have the data, I just think we're going to be able to try, test, and learn in a cycle that we haven't seen um, in a long, long time, probably ever. I think it's going to be pretty exciting for those of us who are on the front lines of it. I think we just have to resist the urge to bash, you know, the, the kind of, thing. oh, they never change this, that. No, there's all kinds of change out there, all kinds of people doing good work. I think what you pay attention to grows. If all you pay attention to is Harvard, God bless you. <laughs> Harvard is like this small percentage of all the people in, in education. Like you've got to look at the broader sectors and understand, wow, there's big, really interesting innovation at hand. And let's put our energy on that and, uh, and understand how we can help that grow. Well, that's a beautiful summary. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. We learned so much and I'm sure our listeners have benefited greatly. I love stirring the pot with you. Whenever you can bring me on, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.